So we just want you to know action. We just want you to know what we're doing because all that's moving pretty quickly. And then if we have time, um, Greg Patrick will do a budget vignette on the um, infrastructure backlog, and Susan Perry will talk about where we are relative to strengthening neighborhoods. So with that, I'd ask Lenny to, to step forward and tell you about uh, the item on your agenda tonight uh, involving some windows. PH7, <coughs> appeal by the property owners of 714 Raleigh Avenue. This is in the HCG2 Historic District uh, of Ghent. The property in question is this side of a two-unit row house. The property owners bought it in December of 2016, proceeded to do an awful lot of renovations. One of those was they popped out all the windows that were replacement aluminum windows, and they put in vinyl windows. Vinyl windows are not allowed in the uh, design guidelines for the historic districts. They were caught doing so. They uh, were then asked to apply for a certificate of appropriateness. They appeared before the ARB uh, in December, I believe, 11th, and their appeal was denied. If you are denied a certificate of appropriateness, your next step of appeal is to the city council. So that's on your agenda today, it's PH7. The vote was 6 to 0. There's approximately 20 windows involved here. They were replaced with um, black vinyl, I believe this is before, and this is the inside of the house. When the aluminum windows were replaced 20 or 30 years ago, these windows used to be arched. They were all filled in, so that the original character is lost completely, and that's what it looks like today. They've then trimmed this in black aluminum. But it's a black vinyl window, which I have not Vinyl windows are just not permitted in the historic district. One, they're not of a character that were there beginning, and they traditionally don't last as long and don't provide the same benefit that either wood windows or wood-clad windows with aluminum uh, would provide. Okay. Andrea? I would just say, uh, living in said historic district and having replaced our windows and having, you know, Part of living there, we had we had strict guidelines on what we had to do for a window replacement, and um, it, they're more expensive, uh, but it keeps the character with the, that's 
why we, we wanted to live in the historic district. We wanted a house that had that character. We wanted our neighbors to have the same level of character as well. well Way back when we were talking about trying to stiffen up and, and uh, we had the HAPC committee for historic preservation, um, this came up that we were very definitive that every realtor gave the information at time of sales to the um, buyer that these were the restrictions that they were now buying into. I know there's some um, argument, I guess, that this gentleman, these people didn't get that. They bought this house from a mortgage company that had taken it under default. Um, in our conversations, we've heard both from them at one time, they didn't know, and then second time, well, they, they did know because it is in the, it's a disclaimer in your closure. <laughs> That you're That's in a, a state, federal, and, and, and local I think historian. we intended this as a, a up just to prepare you. I think formally we're going to hear it tonight, so we shouldn't endeavor to try to. Well, the only thing I want to make sure is that that continues, that every sale we are still uh, um, has that as part of the sale, that they know that about it's COA, correct? All right. Uh, uh, yes. That, right? Uh, yes. Thank you, Mr. Newcomb. Thank you. Martin, we also send out notices every year. We do, and, and there was some concern that they bought in December. Our notice came out in the end of November, but and it would have gone to the owner at the time. So there's some debate over whether they received it or not. Okay. All right, so Christine Morris, your uh, chief resilience officer, is going to tell you um, about the grant that's on your, uh, actually your consent agenda. Tonight. Yes, so this is on the consent agenda uh, tonight, and I just want to, Thank Morgan Whalen for her hard work in uh, securing this grant. It was from the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. It is a Brownfield Restoration and Economic Development uh, Fund grant, $500,000 to restore shorelines areas behind uh, Harbor Park. There is a one-to-one -one match requirement, but spending that we've already done uh, has satisfied and that's already been accepted by the state. And so the area is the next slide where we will be spending that money. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. Um, so, Mr. Pisco is, is going to talk to you about R7 and the investment ordinance and the, the committee that you all want. So, tonight. Uh, R7 amends uh, City Code 1625B4, which is the ordinance that you have passed uh, to manage the city's cash flow. So, you know how big our, our budget is that the Director of Finance has been delegated the obligation to manage the cash flow. And so that um, she endeavors to keep as much as our surplus surplus cash, and when I say surplus cash, I mean the cash that we don't need immediately to write checks, to, to pay bills, to meet payroll, so that it, at times we have more cash on hand uh, than we have obligations. And so that the director of finance invests that. And under the existing ordinance, all of that responsibility is just put on her shoulders. Um, it, it, it seems like a, a lot for one person, but the General Assembly governs the short-term investment and limits it to very safe, safe securities and for just short-term periods. You can't make a, a long-term investment or put it in the stock market. Um, and the Director of Finance has further limited herself and taken what the code permits and tightened it down and given investment guidelines to two investment managers that she has hired. One is a state agency that was created just for the purpose 
of making short-term investments uh, uh, for governments, and the other is our financial consultant, PFM, who is also in that business. Um, and so that's the status quo, and the mayor thought that that was a lot of responsibility for one person, so he suggested that we take a look at it, and we thought that a good check and balance was the creation of this proposed investment committee so that the director of finance would then have somebody to work with. So this ordinance amends what I just described to you and creates the investment advisory committee and requires quarterly reports to the city council so that um, what's quarterly three times a, a year, you will then get a report four, quarterly, uh, four times a year um, um, uh, that you'll get a report on the uh, um, amount that's uh, invested and, and how it's invested and what the return is. So this is an amendment that the, the mayor recognized thought would, would be a good um, a check uh, and, and a good help to the director of finance. And when we brought it up to her, she welcomed it. And, and that's what's on your agenda tonight. The members of the advisory committee are the city manager, city attorney, director of budget, director of finance, and then an investment professional that you would later appoint if you pass this ordinance. And how uh, at, at, at least three times a year, and as frequently uh, as it felt, if it felt it needed to meet more. <clears throat> All right. Thank you, Vern. Um, next item, uh, Mayor, members of council, is um, uh, going to be introduced by Winter Bender, your Chief Deputy <coughs> Manager, and um, HRSD's uh, General Manager, Ted Hennepin, is with us. And you all read a lot in the last, uh, call it a uh, couple of years, frankly, about the uh, SWIFT program, which is the Sustainable Water Initiative for Tomorrow, and something that I think rightly so HRSD is getting a lot of positive reaction to, but we've got an opportunity uh, to participate in a, in a very meaningful way. I want to share that with you tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Doug. Uh, good evening, Mayor, members of City Council. Again, I'll take one more second and introduce Ted Hennepin, who's the General Manager of Hampton Road Sanitation District. He and I this evening will um, bring together what's a proposal to bring SWIFT or establish it at Lambert's Point Golf Course. You see here the overview slide that will walk you through what I intend as far as broad, um, and, we'll, and he and I will do our best to kind of easily segue in and out of this uh, presentation, and we'll, I hope it'll be smooth. I'm going to amend my slide here, that first bullet where it says Norfolk is known as one, I'm going to say we are the most resilient city in the world. Name it and claim it. You heard Christine just a minute ago talk to you about brownfields. Remember, we were the third to sign on as it related to the resilient strategy. Um, let's not overlook the good work that we're doing with the Army Corps that will take us to D.C. on the 12th of March. Uh, the mayor, many of you are back and forth to the state and federal levels championing what we, what we need here as far as resilience. So I'm going to go ahead and amend my bullet. SWIFT, I believe, and I contend, and I think we hope to put forward today, is that kind of resilient effort that will help augment what we're already doing here in Norfolk. And again, to establish or what we understood as SWIFT or what Ted has talked about in the past, um, the idea is to establish it at Lambert's Point on a portion of it. And at this point, I would see what the next slide makes sure that I'm going to ask Ted to pop up and he'll talk you through SWIFT. Thank you, Winter and uh, Mayor and members of council. I've been here before, and um, so I won't belabor the point. I think most of you are aware of what SWIFT is, but uh, really we're adding advanced treatment to all our facilities and uh, making drinking water and then putting that water in the ground into a drinking water aquifer. And it has a, a number of benefits for the region. Uh, cleaner Bay 
was really the driving force for us. So that's about 90% of what we currently discharge, even at very low levels of nitrogen and phosphorus, will no longer be discharged into our local waterways. And so Elizabeth River is one we discharge into tremendously. So that frees up uh, a tremendous amount of nitrogen phosphorus allocation for the Bay TMDL to clean it up. And we've actually entered a trading agreement with the city of Norfolk to uh, relieve you of some of your stormwater obligations under the TMDL. And that was done a number of months ago so that direct benefit to the city of Norfolk from SWIFT as uh, all our other MS4 municipal separate stormwater uh, permit holders in the region will get from that as well. A sustainable supply for groundwater, while you don't have a, a great dependence on groundwater, it is an emergency supply for Norfolk as it is for many other communities in Hampton Roads. And then really the resilience piece is this potential to slow, stop, or reverse land subsidence uh, that's related to aquifer compaction. A lot of debate as to whether that will be successful or not, um, and we don't really know. Uh, but we do have an extensometer going in next to our first injection site uh, to measure that. So we're looking forward to it. Next slide, please. So what we're really talking about is uh, we need some space to put these facilities in because the additional treatment isn't just a little black box. It's a, basically a whole other treatment plant that's added on to our existing treatment plants. Uh, the new facility we're proposing uh, next to our plant at Lambert's Point would have no odors. We're, we're dealing with clean water to start with and making it very clean from that point on. Uh, it, we would have an outward-facing perimeter that would be attractive, and we'd work with the city on how that looks. As we, um, And we're not planning to go all the way out to the water, and I'll show you a map how that looks. Uh, and then trying to integrate that so it's an attractive feature uh, as best it can be. It's still large concrete construction. It's big tanks. It looks very similar to our plant that's out there today. Uh, we won't be adding tremendous staff. The benefit of having the SWIFT facility adjacent to an existing facility is we only need to add uh, two, three maybe at the most uh, additional staff members so we aren't uh, adding a tremendous number of people to the area. We continue to access the site through our plant uh, main gate and uh, really just incremental changes in the amount of deliveries and truck traffic that would go in there. So really minimal impact on the community uh, around that. Next slide, please. So this is the, uh, the map of the proposal. We're looking at about approximately 30 acres. We'd actually uh, grant an easement back to the city around the waterfront to create a uh, public access along the waterfront all the way around the parcel. And uh, we're looking at how to connect back to the Elizabeth River Trail along the southern edge. And uh, we hope to be able to make a full circuit all the way through the, the parcel. The, sure. Can I, can I do it up there or up here? I don't know. So um, Old Minion, driving range, Lambert's Point Golf Course, the HRSD and Virginia Initiative Plan. Uh, and so the idea would be uh, we would take, purchase this piece of land from the city uh, for future expansion uh, for our SWIFT facilities. Driving range would remain city property, and this would become public access around the perimeter so we continue to maintain public access. Next slide, please. And so the, the way this would lay out uh, initially would be our facilities would be in this area as we expand, and we would hold this land for future treatment expansion for the existing plant, which we are exactly sure what that will be. Thank you. Next slide. So uh, I mentioned before that we've got an extensometer. That's a device that measures this aquifer compaction. So it really uh, measures from bedrock to land surface. Uh, we were able to get funding through the General Assembly last year for that. That's the the, how much the General Assembly is uh, behind the SWIFT project. That was a tight budget year last year, and uh, they fully funded that extensometer. The USGS is finishing that up right now. Uh, we expect to be putting water in the ground in northern Suffolk at that location uh, within the next 60 days, and that'll be a million gallons a day, and we'll get early indication as to how successful we'll be with the groundwater uh, or with the land subsidence issue. 
The other piece that's floating uh, in General Assembly right now is an oversight committee. We wanted an independent oversight committee for the SWIFT project and a monitoring lab, and that monitoring lab will be housed at Old Dominion University in partnership with Virginia Tech. Um, that bill has made it through the House and is now in the Senate. Uh, in fact, it will be in committee this week. Before we um, move away from this slide, I wanted to acknowledge that uh, the mayor and I met with uh, President Broddick last week and told him about this proposal, and he is excited. Obviously, the, the House bill does a lot to um, um, house SWIFT at Old Dominion through research and what have you, but he's also, we told him where it was going, and he's completely supportive of the proposal. So here's the proposal. Uh, and I want to get this right. Um, having practiced law and only play one on TV now, I want to read what, what's being proposed. By the end of this fiscal year, HOSD will agree to pay the city $15 million for an option to purchase Lambert's Point Golf Course to establish SWIFT. If SWIFT is successful, HRSD will then pay the city a subsequent $15 million with inflated according to CPI or 2%, whichever is less, to exercise the option to purchase Lambert's Point Golf Course on or before December 31st, 2023. Important in this is that um, you'll see that the Lambert's Point Golf Course will continue to be operated until 2023. That's where Ted's trying to figure out the science of SWIFT. Hopefully it all works. I'm, I'm with him. And then this last bullet, we know that it's very important for our residents and citizens of the city of Norfolk to retain access to the waterfront, understanding that it is a, um, is it a recreative amenity. And hopefully we can, like what he said, con uh, connect the Elizabeth River Trail around this portion of property. Other considerations, broad uh, level, Lambert's Point Golf Course will be operated until 2023. We, we had it privately appraised. We want you to know that it was appraised uh, just under $6 million. You can see there that um, part of the MOU that we have requires a buyout of the um, operator once we, and once we move forward with this, and that would be approximately $70,000. Um, maintenance needs, something to understand is that it opened in 2005, so it's going to have capital maintenance needs that we need to entertain and understand. Um, Fluctuating attendance. It's um, high and low. Golf isn't necessarily the recreative sport that it once was. This is also a nine-hole course with the driving range. Uh, Sewell's Point um, will be one of the golf court locations. If we're thinking about taking uh, a golf course online, again, it's a nine-hole, 18-hole uh, golf course. And in fact, today, Ted may have stolen it from up here. I'm looking at his notes. Thanks a lot, Ted. Um, we, re we received a waiver from the Department of the Navy, and I'd take this minute to acknowledge Doug Beaver and uh, uh, Craig Quigley with Harumpha. So uh, I'll show this as a demonstrative. It, in fact, happened February 27th. I'll pass it around. This is hard work. We're excited about it. Um, so, and, and also this idea that recreational opportunities, again, uh, unless it snows, we're talking about golfers usually who have the most access to the course. Now it would be something we hope that we can open up to many more people. The other piece is that, by the way, remember, this is built on a landfill. So there's certain liabilities that we need to mitigate. Um, they're risks. They're unknown. I could propose a number, but I would completely be guessing to give you not an apple to an apple, but at least an apple to an orange. In this impending fiscal year, we're going to expend or at least propose to expend $2.1 million. And I'll tell you, there's no real dickering with it. we got to do it. Um, and just as an ongoing expense, you'll see that that shoreline, um, just normally, it, we expend roughly about a million dollars annually to help ensure that um, what we know there is a landfill isn't kind of erupting into our river. But just because the, the 2.1 and 19 is for the Camp Estella Yes, sir, it is. Not for, and it was trying to propose what the, yes, ma'am. So um, the shoreline repair that you referenced there, yes. would that become the responsibility of HRSD? And at what point would that be at the, the sale in 2023? Or would that become their responsibility immediately? I appeal to the legal team. Where's Michelle? Did she stay around? 
I think it's your responsibility. Twenty twenty three. The clothes on file. Yes. And then another just um, uh, words. Yes, matter. absolutely. Um, on the slide before you said on or before twenty twenty three, and here it says may be operated until twenty twenty three. Can you explain to me what that means? Well, I think it's part of it is the. Tip, the agreement as, as we've drafted it right now says we won't um, exercise the option any earlier than January 1st of 2023. Okay. And we've got till the end of 2023 to exercise it. So it's really a one year window to understand so what we're doing. Be 2019. No, no, okay. no ma'am. Good point. So um, upon council approval, we'd recommend, or at least we recommend that um, we move forward with this proposed option of SWIFT at Lambert's Point Golf Course. Upon your proposal, we'd memorialize this option agreement with Ted and Hampton Road Sanitation District. And then as early as um, March the 13th, we'd schedule a public hearing to entertain uh, this disposition. I want to speak a little bit as far as the, the arrangement we have now with the, uh, for maintenance of the golf course. I, I'm not exactly um, on top. Maybe Nikki should have been here for that. But there's a, we have an MOU with an operator that, that shares certain responsibilities. They have to expend certain capital, uh, certain monies on capital. Um, so what those are, I can get you kind of detail. So because this course, the course wouldn't be closed until potentially 2023. Correct. Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want to make sure that we're maintaining the quality of the course in those five years. Um, so I don't want it, you know, they're going to lose their option after five years potentially. Right. But in the meantime, we need to maintain the uh, quality of the course. So I want to make sure that's part of our negotiation. Yes, sir. Good, Adrian. And the Sewell's point, just to clarify, that is not um, dependent on this, this agreement. Not that's at something all. that we can move forward with in this year. So we bring forward, there's an MOU. Right here. Yes, right you here. have. You have the piece of paper that I've waved like a fool. Uh, uh, before you, uh, we bring forward hopefully. So that was part of the P4 initiative, that public public working with uh, the Navy on low hanging fruit where we could partner. One of which was Sewell's Point. They'd asked because they have low attendance by way of golfers if they could look to expand to include. They themselves can't do that um, without our permission and our acceptance, and that's why we got this waiver. And we hope to acknowledge it as a, that, a success because another element or aspect is that we in turn have access to, and I always want to call it, it's Slade Cutter Park. Um, where we can do soccer and other kind of recreative acti activities to include baseball, when and if, uh, well, when uh, um, Ocean View opens up for full baseball. So good news, that can happen separate, and those will happen, I, I hope, as early as March 13th. Smarter. Gentlemen, appreciate being here. Very exciting. And uh, Winter, well done. Appreciate that. Um, at this point, I've asked uh, Chief uh, Larry Boone to step forward, and uh, Chief is going to talk to you about um, 2017 and um, uh, the, the year that they he had, and, and as I said, the trends you know, really uh, were positive. I've also asked him to just touch on some of the stuff that's going on. That he's really doing a nice job working with the school system with some of the things that have gone on the last 10 days or two weeks, and I just want you to be aware of, of what's happening there. Okay. So good evening, everybody, Mr. Mayor, members of council, Mr. Smith. Uh, when you, there you go. So when you consider uh, 2017, um, by looking at our data, we're going in the right direction. And I want to say firmly that we could not do this without the support of our community, um, our business leaders, frankly, you all, but more importantly, my men and women that do a very difficult job 
every day. So uh, when I was here six months ago, I expressed that we changed our strategy by way of addressing crime. We've gone away from random patrol. Random patrol equals random results. We focus on crime drivers, individuals that have a history of driving crime, and we follow them wherever they go, for the most part. Here are our results. So we had the lowest crime stats in 32 years of this organization. We had the largest one-year decrease in violent crime since 1998, the lowest total number of violent crimes since 1985, the largest one-year decrease in property crime since 2006, and the lowest total number of property crime since 1985. So let's look at homicides. Um, we had a decrease of 25% compared to 2016. We had 12 less incidents. Now, homicides are one of those uh, emotional acts of crime. Many, many of our homicides um, involve individuals that know one another individuals that are involved in drug activity together, individuals that are involved in gang activity. We have very, very, very few stranger homicides. And that makes it difficult. You know, me and Mr. Smith can be conversing on a Friday night, and he gets mad at me and shoots me. Well, it's kind of hard for the police to prevent that. We had a lot of those towards the end of last year and towards the beginning of this year. But there are occasions where you can impact homicides, and I'll get to that later. So with respect to rapes, um, we were down 7%. Uh, that's 10 incidents less than the prior year. We have a 91 uh, percentile conviction rate, meaning we've identified a suspect and arrested said suspect. And most of these are not strangers, strangers, they're acquaintances. All right, our business robberies, our robbery business rather, uh, they were flat. We were, um, uh, we interfaced the same as we did the prior year. A robbery to individual, we were down by 30%. That is 119 less incidents, and that's huge because when you consider what's involved in robbery to individual, there's a knife, a gun, and that could potentially be a homicide. The same thing with aggravated assaults. Uh, we were down 18%. We had 146 less incidents than we had in 2016, and, and that's the same thing. They generally involve a gun, a knife, or something that, you know, that could potentially produce a homicide. So when we look at property crime, all burglary, uh, we're down 10%. Um, that equals 131 less incidents than the prior year. And larceny from parts from auto, we're down 14%. That is 618 less incidents. And I really believe by focusing on uh, curfew violators at night and holding their parents accountable, that drove that down. Because there were some neighborhoods that were getting, quite frankly, raped by these things, and we seem to have a handle of it right now. Stolen vehicles, we were down 12% compared to last year. That's a reduction of 97 incidents. 
So in summation, when you look at 2017 compared to the previous year, we had 287 less violent acts. There were 1,332 less property crimes compared to the prior year. And when you combine those together, we're looking at a reduction of total crime by way of 1,619 incidents for a reduction of 13%. So when you look at shooting-related incidents, you want to look at persons shot. Now, that's important because um, there are some locations in the city where you know there's going to be an incident. And I'll get into that later. So what we have to do as a police organization is um, intelligence-led policing based on our data. So we strategically place resources where we knew, based on intel, that something was going to occur. And as you can see, uh, we had a reduction of 26% people being shot. That equals out to 65 people less than the prior year. The same thing for shooting into buildings as well as cars. Um, the same thing goes. You, you know where you have a problem. You have to place those resources there. And we had a reduction of 22%. And that was 108 less incidents than the prior year. So I use Richmond as a comparison. Really, that's the only city that kind of looks like us by terms of demographics and culture and their challenges. So on the heels of 2016, we recognized there was an issue between two communities. These communities made no bones about it. Um, they were in a conflict. And they would basically tell us what they were going to do and where they were going to do it. So knowing that, we deployed resources in those areas. As you can see, um, we had less people shot as a result. I have no doubt, had we not done that, in 2017, we would have been looking high 50s for homicide. And I use Richmond as an example because, again, like I said previously, it kind of looked like us, and they still got some problems. Questions on that? Um, can you give us a comparison in all the categories. You may can't do it now, but you cited Richmond, uh, that they compare in demographics and challenges and sure, issues. Sure. But have, did they experience any reduction in those areas? Their overall reduction was 2%. Um, that tells me that they realistically throughout, throughout the board or across the board are still struggling. Okay. All right. And when you talk about us, throughout the board with a 13% overall, that, that's huge. Anytime you get double digits in this line of work, that's significant. Chief, uh, good job. Thank you for also making us look good. Uh, we appreciate that. Um, the sting that happened with the federal um, government, the big one, that um, was it 17 people got arrested in Norfolk? Project Riptide. Yes. Utah Mall. Um, what did you call it? Operation Riptide. Riptide, Riptide. okay, right, yes. Right, right. Do you contribute some of the decreases in crime to that 
And do we have any more of those planned? You well, know, I, I won't, tell, I won't yeah. share that with yeah. you, but anytime we can get support from our federal partners, that's always a plus. And I'm always behind the scene uh, working with them. And you won't know it until it actually shows itself, which it will shortly. Yeah, there uh, um, was a very big impact on the community as well. So not only the data that you're talking about, as that started trickling out, there was a decrease. But I think that operation also, I, I saw a lot of comments on social media about the work that was done with that sure. as well. Sure. All right, Mr. Riddick? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Chief. Um, congratulations on your decrease in crime. I noticed, you know, a totally difference in, uh, in my neighborhood, which reflects uh, through true urban, you know, area. Drug arrest, you didn't say anything about that. I can get that for you. Yeah, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to know uh, because uh, that's very important. Just yes, yes, uh, with the uh, opioid, you know, and heroin in particular. Uh, I always say that Norfolk has now replaced Portsmouth as far as heroin is concerned. I could be wrong, you know, but uh, you know, I'd like to see us do more in regards to that. Uh, also. Something that uh, I've been, you know, concerned about as well as a, uh, Dr. Whipple, we seem to be the only one, concerned about traffic enforcement. And I think I've talked to you about uh, traffic enforcement, in particular <coughs> Lafayette Boulevard and Tidewater Drive. And I asked the manager the other day, and I think he would be checking with uh, Ms. Drake or somebody, uh, about putting a camera there for people running lights. I think I called you... Uh, and you gave me some stats, you know, on that particular intersection. But we need to we need to slow our traffic down. Everybody's in a hurry. They're either on a cell phone, they're texting. Our biggest violators are school bus drivers, city workers, and HRT uh, buses. So I'd like to see us get heavy-handed, you know, with them because all of these uh, they, that would reduce our insurance rate. Uh, and so I think we really need, as far as our uh, HRT uh, bus drivers and uh, city uh, employees, yes, sir. they need to recognize that uh, our insurance rates uh, depend a lot on how they, you know, do do their driving. And also, I just really like to see us do more traffic enforcement. You know, several years ago, there was an article in the Virginia policy that Norfolk had a quota. But it's not a quota. And um, if you look at the number of people who stretch lights and the number of people who also uh, drive at high rates of speed while they own a cell phone, also all day, I don't think General Assembly has done anything about cell phones, uh, maybe for minors, you know, uh, but not for adults. But, but they, are, they are our biggest uh, perpetrators as well. And so I think we really, if we, we just really need to get heavy handed. I was telling you chief the other day that uh, I didn't believe as a youngster that they had radar. So my dad told me I was going to suffer to see Booker T play Booker T, suffer Booker T in Norfolk. He told me about radar. And I would like for Norfolk to be like 58, going to Emporia. <coughs> I'd like for Norfolk to be like South Norfolk used to be, where when people come through Norfolk, they know that they have to obey the speed and they know they need to, um, you know, observe these lights. And one of the other things that 
that you don't have any control over that I mentioned to the manager, um, and we haven't discussed it around this table, <clears throat> is that I'd like to see trucks taken off of Tywell to drive after uh, 3.30, like it is on Hampton Boulevard. Because, which is a doubt. Four o'clock. Yeah. At least going through the time. Yeah, whatever, whatever the time is, because you, we uh, we put ourselves in a, a very precarious uh, situation during those times of the day when they have to get off of the Boulevard and they're rushing down um, uh, Tidewater Drive, and it'll be hard for uh, to enforce traffic <coughs> on Tidewater Drive, just like Church Street. As a high rate of speed on Church Street, we have signs flashing, but the way the street is configured, it would be hard for one of your radar guys or women to um, come out of one of those streets without causing an accident in the evening. So somehow we have to uh, slow this traffic down in Norfolk. Yes, sir. And uh, I've, I've been saying that, uh, Dr. Whitley said it doesn't make any difference to the other members of council. Just yes, it does. Me and, so what, me and Dr. Whitley. what can we do? You know, when I had brought this up with Bernard and he said that we're bound by, you know, because I said, let's just jack up the fine. And we're bound, I think, by the state to do that. But there is a provision if we find several uh, streets that are particularly egregious that we could maybe have um, higher fines on that. But others had said that wasn't a good idea because it discriminated against our lower incomes. Uh, residents, but why can't we become the Emporia of Southside? Well, the one because that's a rural county, and you know they kind but of. But Emporia doesn't charge more; they just enforce it. And yeah, everybody but knows you don't speed in Emporia. I, I hear what you're saying, <laughs> but we have so many other things in this city that they don't contend with. Now we we are all over the city enforcing um, speeding. We have the data to support that. Unfortunately, we cannot stay. In these locations forever. We're playing whack-a-mole. Yeah. You know, I get the emails from everybody. We, we have an issue over here, we go over here, we have an issue over here, we're over here. We have an issue over here, we're over here. So um, we're doing the very best we can. All right, so Mr. Um, Mr. Reddy, you want to finish your thought before yeah. I go to, okay, go ahead. <coughs> and then, 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 on, then, on, on that particular note, and then I'll pass the, pass the baton, how much would it cost you in your budget to create a true traffic division that, that's dedicated to, um, you know, slowing this traffic down. Don't be looking around. Well, you know, off the top of my head, you know, a million dollars. Uh, a million? Yes, sir. Can you get the red light cameras paid for that? No. All right, let's get to Mamie. Yeah. Mamie and Andrea. They have a red light okay. Congratulations, yes, um, and I just want to say to my colleagues and to um, the public that Chief Boone has been in the schools for a very long time um, and has made a, a difference uh, with Life Enrichment Center and partnering with uh, uh, Broad Creek Civic League for the last 10 years. And um, Chief Boone was right there from the, the very start volunteering with our our scholars to to make a difference um, and also the mentorship so thank you so very much Welcome. Chief Boone for being in the schools and uh, you and your team making a difference 
um, with the scholars. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Andrea. Thank you to you and your team. Um, I want to talk about technology and innovation, sure. uh, what we're doing in that realm. Um, we <coughs> talked about buses. We talked about city vehicles. Um, if we have GPS on our buses, schools, HRT, <laughs> GPS on our vehicles. I've got a tracker on my kid's vehicle. I know when he's speeding, and I know when it's harsh braking. And that technology is out there. And so I know that's not your issue, but it's something that we can continue to work on in the city, and we can encourage our friends on the school board to put GPS on their buses. And I will tell you that I'm working on HRT to get it on there. So um, second is data. Um, how are we using data so we're less whack-a-mole and we're more analyzing our data to make smart decisions about where we go? Well, we, we go to uh, intersections or locations throughout the city based on accidents, uh, complaints of speed. Um, for an example, <coughs> Mr. Ritter gave me a, an intersection about four or five months ago, and when I looked at the data, uh, quite frankly, it was not one of the most problematic areas in the city. It was like five others. So we use our data to kind of dictate where we go, just like with crime. Accidents or speeding is, is no different. You know, wherever the um, science tells us, that's where we tend to go. Are we using any sort of algorithms or predictive analysis? I mean, do we have anybody to do that sort of stuff, or we're not there you, yet? You know, we do that with crime. Um, we hadn't got there on track. And, and a lot of these jobs too in our new open data portals that will launch this year? Yes. The third is Louisville just announced that they're one of the first in the country to start a drone program. Well, we're so working drones, on that. So the drones will yeah. go after Shot Spotter and yeah. first on the scene. Shot Spotter. Uh, Mixed results. But what about the drones? What are we doing there? We are in the embryo stages of purchasing a drone for parades, large gatherings, things of that nature. I'll send you this article for Louisville. Though they're literally they're sending the drones out before the police can get there when they hear the shots. Um, anyway. Chief, also, when, before you get too heavily in the drones, be sure you download the state code uh, because there, there is some challenges that you will face as it relates to what the drone actually collects and how that information can be used um, in, in a prosecution. Um, the second thing I would say, um, 2017 data, great. But, you know, I don't want to spike the ball. Uh, <laughs> I want to go... Uh, I want to go the distance. I think that we still have too many shootings. Um, I do believe that we still have too many uh, break-ins, uh, mainly on the west side. A lot of you know, cars being broken into, people looking for things to, to sell for, for, for drugs or for whatever. And also, um, I agree with Mr. Riddick. I would like to see more traffic stops. Uh, you know, we've talked about raids and stings and uh, those kinds of enforcements, and you're doing those things. Um, so keep it up. Um, I don't know about that million dollars uh, that, uh, that you threw out there. I'm always going to speak with big teeth. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, uh, that's going to come out of award four. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> He's got it. Okay. Uh, Tommy said he has it. Okay. Has it. Can, can right, I ask yeah. um, In your shootings, have we had any police shootings? Uh, we had two last year. Okay. Is it uh, shooting down nationwide? Uh, Police no. shootings, they're not. Yes, yes, they are. That's right. Yes, they but are. in Norfolk, we only had two. We year. had two last year. You mean in uh, 17? 2017, correct. And Mr. Riddick, to uh, Chief Bowen and also Goldsmith, and to just 
the council, we ask that all of our officers have a crisis intervention training, right. and I think that we are we're, we're almost we, there. We're, we're, I think it's 430 officers right. the last time I checked. And so um, the last thing, uh, uh, Chief, you know, last week, you know, we had a few threats at some of our schools or potential threats, and, you know, uh, we uh, know that you, you responded. And um, is there anything that you want to share with us about about what's happening in NPS, Norfolk Schools, and how we are handling, you know, our, our schools, our parks, and our places where people congregate, you know, we have a lot of open space. All right, so we have a, a lot of soft targets. Um, so when I became chief, one of the things I wanted to do is to provide some oversight with respect to security for our private schools and our elementary schools. Uh, as you know, we have school resource officers at our high schools and middle schools. So what we did, we started making courtesy visits in light of uh, last week, or the week before last, in Parkland, Florida, uh, we have stepped up our game with respect to that. Um, we're going to have a courtesy check of every private school and elementary school three times a day, sometimes more. Those visits will last anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes. Um, there will be a login book for the officers to sign in to and kind of capture what they did, who they talked to, and how long they were there. Um, also, um, in light of Parkland, Florida, we are assessing the fitness of our school resource officers. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about the officer that didn't go in. So they said, um, our officers, officers are going through training. Um, we are evaluating whether or not um, they're a good fit in the event something like that occurs. Um, we go through active training, um, threat training every year. So those are some of the uh, low-hanging fruit that we can do right away. I've gotten plenty of um, positive responses from the school system. And, you know, um, we have to protect our kids, and we're going to do the best that we can. Okay. Mr. Riddick? Yeah. Um, one thing I'd like to mention to you, and I'm sure you're certainly aware of it, we have the MEAC tournament coming up. Yes, sir. And... Uh, I guess one of the most disheartening things is to come out of the arena and have a $35, $40 ticket. Now, if someone is parking at a fire hydrant or something like that, then uh, we understand that. But uh, maybe, you know, if you had warning tickets for uh, the people who are coming to the uh, tournament. Also, one thing I'd mentioned in the past, and I don't know how we control that, is these predatory tours. These touring companies that ride around and uh, they see uh, a vehicle there, and whether the owner of the property has called them or not, they still will tow those cars. So somehow between the city attorney's office and your office, uh, you know, I, I think we need to do something. One of the biggest impacts of the tournament this year is that the lot that the city had previously allowed uh, tournament goers to uh, park in front of uh, First Baptist View Street well, there's construction going on there. So somehow we need to be able to direct the, um, the uh, tournament goers, mm -hmm. you know, to um, other areas. And I can truthfully say that, in the, you know, there, there have been no incidents 
Uh, Norfolk has done a great job of protecting people who are coming here spending money, and I'm sure you're going to do the same thing on your watch because they've signed another three-year well, contract. Last year was my watch. So. Well, well <laughs> you'll continue. You know, you, you, do, you, do, you continue. But they've signed a three-year contract, and we need to keep them here. There's nowhere else for them yes, to sir. go. And so in, between the manager, you, and the attorney, I think we need to concentrate on the people who are coming here. I hope they'll spend a lot of money and that they won't have to spend money on tickets. Set, but set radars up all around there, though. Yeah, yeah. To get up for speeding. No parking tickets, but we'll get up for speeding. The pilot. Okay. Mr. Uh, Mr. Manager, we good? I think we're good. Right, let's go. Yeah, well, I think we're good. Um, you, we're going to get into, Chief, uh, really well done. Right, uh, a great job. story. appreciate you sharing. Yeah. Um, uh, Deputy City Manager James Rogers is going to step up. I've talked to you individually um, about, uh, and, we, and it came up really quickly at the retreat, about uh, this new program, Opportunity Zone. And as you all know, the mayor was in uh, Washington the uh, week before last. Uh, literally sitting with a group of eight or ten folks uh, with uh, Ivanka Trump and uh, one of his senior economic advisors, uh, Mr. Cohn, uh, talking about the program and how the program could roll out and what it could be used for, and then I had an opportunity to talk to the president himself and, and talk about the importance of this program, potentially for uh, St. Paul's in particular. But we're going to have an opportunity to um, uh, apply to have as many as 15 uh, we're going to actually submit some more, but we think somewhere around 15 uh, census tracts uh, that the governor would then submit to uh, the, uh, the federal government to, to HUD for um, certification. Um, and so that's all happening really quickly. Uh, the um, governor's got to get his list in by the 21st of March, I think. Yes, so our list has got to be to the state by the 2nd of March. And so James is just going to give you a quick update. Nothing for you to do, but just want you to be aware since this is moving pretty quickly. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Mayor and Vice Mayor and Council and Mr. City Manager. Again, just a quick, uh, again, it is a new tool uh, that we have in terms of uh, uh, community development. And really, we'll just give you a background, what it does, what's the process, selection criteria, recommended tracks, timeline, and next steps. And uh, I'll be fairly uh, brief on these. Uh, uh, again, how does it work? <laughs> So as we're walking into the Roosevelt Room, Secrets we're all going in. The man sticks his arm in front of me and says, uh, no, you're not going. <laughs> so I was sitting in the lobby looking at a big coffee book about the White House. Oh, and we have a cell phone. <laughs> and Winter has stopped even further down the line. <laughs> and as the manager said, this was really an opportunity yeah, for the mayor and, uh, and folks to actually get a, a high-level briefing on the program prior to it rolling out. So really just uh, the next slide, please. Uh, just uh, so how it, work, how it works. It's a uh, tax program under the Tax uh, Cut and um, uh, Jobs Act. And really what it is, it's, a, it's about uh, having a deferral tax, taxes in terms of, for instance, if you have capital gains of, uh, say, a million dollars, and you want to invest that money into what they call opportunity funds, you now will be able to do that and really uh, be able to uh, lessen your tax burden. And it's a five, seven, or 10 year. If you keep it in the whole time of 10 years, you will have a 100% uh, break on your taxes. So again, it's one of those things that really uh, will be an incentive for folks to, uh, in the private sector, to uh, put into some uh, communities around the country. And next slide. And again, what's the process? Uh, as the manager said, 
it's really about uh, census tracts, uh, strategically putting those uh, tracts in. And really what the state does is we have to send our 25 or 14 up to the, to the state. The state has, uh, the, the Commonwealth has 840 uh, census tracts uh, throughout the state. They only can uh, submit uh, 210 to uh, the Treasury. Again, for our pot that we have, we have, again, 56, and 25% of those are 14. And so, again, we will be putting those together, and I'll share, share those with you, and then we'll put those together. Again, the last bullet there is uh, talking about the uh, is going to actual opportunity fund. Real quickly, the next one. The criteria. One of the things that uh, we really want to make sure we did was, uh, and so we did this in a fashion that made some sense, really what you're looking at, some economic drivers that you have, whether it's a port, whether it is a resource facility, uh, university research, uh, those are the kinds of, uh, of uh, census tracts they're looking at. And uh, so again, we put those in and we got around a table, begin to look at those and so uh, have access to major highways and that are in strategic development areas that this uh, council has uh, designed. So again, next slide. Here's our uh, recommended list that we're going to send in. Uh, and really using that criteria, we wanted to make, you can see a couple of uh, universities there, uh, both Norfolk State and uh, ODU, uh, really uh, talking about, the, when you look at the top three there, those, uh, uh, we're talking about St. Paul's. Uh, and then you have, you go all the way down to, uh, we actually have um, uh, East, uh, East Ocean View. And that fourth one, that, that 14th one you see, they're what they call contiguous uh, uh, zones, and you can only pick one of those. And what we've done is we've, uh, we've captured the awards corner in that particular one. So again, that's the list. We are going to submit more than this, but this is what the list that we wanted to share with you. Yes, sir. I just wanted to, do you have that list to explain my awards corner? Well, what, what it is is if you look at a map I just gave you, or right. I, I think I just gave you a map, there are, yeah, it's the pink ones or the red ones. They are um, 11 of those. You can, you can only submit 25% uh, of those, which is only one. Okay, one of yes. 25% of the total. Yeah. Again, we have... And then 25% of the green. Yes, sir, which is 56 of those. You can okay. only do 14. But again, you can do more than that. But this is what we're working with right now. We're certainly going to submit more so than this. So the process one. is pretty fluid. And mm -hmm. so what we did, the, the quick reaction has been 25% of the state right. the tracks that qualify are going to be submitted. So each community will get, you know, order of magnitude 25. Right. But we're going to make an argument that, that we've got greater need, and we're going to submit more than the, the, the 15. The contiguous is, is, is pretty um, uh, gray right now. Right. Um, there are, you can be contiguous to a census tract and, and not qualify, <laughs> and, and that's the case of one of the tracts uh, uh, next to St. Paul's. Um, but the, obviously, as he said, on the Ward's Corner one, and the pink ones that you see there actually can, are contiguous ones that, that can qualify. And the next one is just uh, kind of giving you a sense of the map. Uh, and again, we looked at the uh, economic zones that we had. All of those factors went into us uh, uh, selecting those. Again, give you a timeline, uh, as Mr. Smith shared with you. Uh, really, we're, we, that's why we wanted to bring it before you. Uh, literally by Friday, we need to submit this to, uh, to the state. Uh, they will actually take that information uh, really, the governor's office will look at it, and then they have to submit that to the Treasury, and so that's how we're going to do it. But behind the scenes, obviously, we'll be talking, continue to talk to them. Uh, Jeff Slater is the gentleman that we talk to at the, at the state, so we'll continue to have dialogue with them. Next slide. And then next steps for us. 
uh, really just, as I said, we're going to submit those things, uh, put them in, um, and really submit those by the end of the week. Uh, the monitor, for, and we'll continue to monitor the federal selection uh, in, the, in the guidance. And really one other, if we can go to the takeaways real quickly, which is the next slide. It really, again, just uh, this is a new financial vehicle that we think really could uh, help us in terms of those things that we have around here to submit uh, for term of um, private investment. Again, you can have banks, philanthropists, all of those things uh, that could uh, can actually put into these funds. Uh, then we're going to continue to stay engaged and visible uh, with uh, with folks around the state. Um, we're going to put priority in terms of uh, St. Paul's uh, census tracts. And then one that's not on here, but I just wanted to make sure that we, we're going to do something a bit differently. You, uh, again, the city manager shared with you when, when he talked about your inclusive uh, economic growth. We're really going to make sure we galvanize in terms of talk to the community, the business, and, and, uh, and the philanthropy community to make sure that this is now an ecosystem that we're building so that we can really have uh, uh, and leverage the money that's right here in our community to, to do this. And, and so, again, that's, uh, that's all I have, sir. Thank you. Tom, just a yes, uh, quick comment. Um, we're two years away from another census, and I, I just want to make sure we, since we were talking sure. about census, that we are gearing up to educating the public about um, census and how important it is, particularly with uh, redistricting uh, and boundaries. And, you know, Norfolk got carved up. Uh, last time in the General Assembly, still could be carved up, mm -hmm. but just um, making sure that we're already having this. Con I don't know who yeah, your office is. Meetings. Mayor's been in several meetings. Yeah, okay. uh, you want Ghost? Why don't you jump up real quick? We, along with Mayor, have had uh, a couple of meetings now uh, with Mr. Brown, who's going to be the area uh, manager for the census. We're already talking about <coughs> identifying workspace form, uh, identifying workers to do that. So we're having those conversations. Okay. So they've already they already have somebody yes, on sir. the ground. Okay. Yes, all right, James, James, thank you very much. That was great. Um, uh, next item is going to be uh, your budget director, Greg Patrick, is going to do a, a budget vignette and talk about uh, the infrastructure impact. <coughs> Good evening, Mayor, members of council. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you tonight. Uh, tonight I have for, for you a budget vignette on the state of the city's infrastructure <coughs> and our infrastructure backlog. Uh, please keep in mind uh, that this presentation is informational for council as you prepare for your fiscal year 2019 budget deliberations. Um, it does not include recommendations from staff and does not require action by the City Council. Uh, so first, tonight we'll talk about managing our infrastructure uh, as we emerged from the Great Recession. Uh, next, we'll take a look at specific areas of infrastructure maintenance needs. Uh, then we'll review a, a summary of our infrastructure backlog. And finally, I'll leave you with some takeaways. Uh, we are an old city. Um, and as an old city, we have aging infrastructure. Uh, we have water and sewer lines that have uh, been in the ground since before World War I. The average age of a city building is more than 40 years old. Uh, we're not alone. Urban core cities across the country are facing many of these same challenges. Uh, as we emerge from the Great Recession and entered this period of constrained revenue growth that we're now experiencing, uh, by financial necessity, we deferred maintenance on our city facilities and roads and we slowed the rate of replacement of technology in our, our vehicles. Uh, the results of which you'll see on the following slides. It's important to remember we didn't make bad infrastructure decisions. Uh, rather, we adapted to our new financial reality and uh, effectively managed our infrastructure within our available resources. 
So let's talk about uh, what's included in the presentation and considered to be infrastructure. Uh, so of course we'll talk about the large physical assets that are typically thought of in the context of infrastructure, uh, like roads, bridges, water and sewer lines, and city facilities. Uh, we'll also consider our parking facilities, our information technology assets, uh, and the, the city's fleet. Uh, for each of these areas, we'll uh, talk about the concept of an infrastructure backlog. Uh, an infrastructure backlog does not include new or replacement facilities. Uh, rather, it refers to the total amount of the value of work that needs to be undertaken to bring the city's physical assets up to an acceptable standard. Now let's take a look at some specific areas of infrastructure need and the associated backlog. Uh, first, we'll take a look at our IT infrastructure, specifically computers, telephones, and our public safety radios. Uh, the city has about 4,300 laptop and desktop computers. Uh, typically, these devices should be replaced roughly every five years. Uh, <coughs> right now, about 3,500 or 82% of our computers are beyond their useful life. Uh, the city has about 4,100 desk phones. Uh, 3,600 of these phones are beyond their useful life. <clears throat> so essentially every landline that we have that the city owns that isn't at the Slover Library or at the new courthouse uh, should be replaced and the support server and the backbone, a system backbone along with it. Uh, finally, public safety radios. The city has about 2,600 public safety radios and around 2,000 or about 77% uh, need to be replaced. Uh, most of these radios get a first line run with police or fire. Uh, and then they're deployed uh, in the field with uh, public works or utilities. Uh, all told, the, the cost to bring this IT infrastructure uh, up to an acceptable standard is about $11.5 million. All right, Andrea. This doesn't include all the service providers, well. It doesn't. Uh, and, and we're working with, with IT to get a good understanding of, of exactly where we stand. Okay, Mr. Riddick. Yeah, did you give us a dollar amount on curb streets and gutters and things like that? We will, sir. I mean, you don't have it now? It's, it's coming down. Oh, okay. All he did was technology okay. so far. Okay. Uh, so on to city facilities. So the city owns about 200 buildings with more than 2 million square feet of space. Uh, the average age of a city building is about 40 years old. Uh, our general service department has done a great job of managing building maintenance within uh, with a budget that allows them to spend about 60 cents less per square foot than is the industry standard. Uh, however, building maintenance is expensive. Uh, an HVAC replacement in a large building averages about $250,000. Uh, and roof repairs or replacement can range from uh, $200,000 up to a $1 million. Uh, all told, General Services has identified nearly 400 projects as part of the city's facility backlog with a total cost of about $43.8 million. Uh, our city's fleet. Uh, the city owns more than 2,000 vehicles and pieces of equipment that our fleet management operation manages. A fleet uses a point system to determine when a vehicle needs to be replaced. Uh, that point system considers a combination of age, uh, maintenance history, and mileage. Uh, the current fleet inventory has an average age of about 10 years. Uh, the industry benchmark is six to seven years. Currently, nearly 69% of our fleet inventory uh, is past its useful life based on our point system um, and it, with an estimated backlog of about $60 million. Uh, coming out of the Great Recession, 
Um, and into this period of constrained revenue, uh, the city is focused on replacing vehicles for our, our really essential operations. So your police cars, your fire trucks, your ambulances, and waste management trucks. Uh, while we haven't been able to fully keep pace with the desired replacement schedule for these items, uh, we're in better shape here than we are with our, our, our city's general fleet. Uh, the table on this slide, and it's, it's tough to read on the, on the computer screen here, uh, provides a snapshot of where we are today as it relates to some categories of, of fleet vehicles. Uh, now on to public works. Uh, the slide has a lot of information, so I'll attempt to, to summarize. Uh, the public works backlog consists of asphalt and concrete roads, bridges, ADA ramps, curb and gutter and sidewalks, and traffic poles. So a couple of uh, a quick facts. It cost about $75,000 per lane mile to resurface an asphalt road but more than $1.3 million per lane mile uh, to resurface a concrete road. It cost about $660,000 per lane mile to install curb, gutter, and sidewalk. Uh, Public, Public Works has done a really good job managing our, our infrastructure repairs uh, within its resources, uh, using techniques like micro-resurfacing to extend the, life, uh, the useful life of roads without requiring a full resurfacing, and leveraging local funds uh, to access uh, VDOT funding, but all told at this point, uh, our, our public works backlog um, is about $432 million. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in regards to the difference between asphalt and concrete, uh, if, we, if we use concrete, what would be the likelihood of the uh, potholes and, and pothole replacements? I mean, does, would concrete give us a longer uh, shelf life? So I am not sure, but our public direct works director, Richard Broad, uh, yes, certainly uh, should be able to answer that. Concrete roads usually last about 50 years, and put them in there great for 50 years. And then after 50 years, the truck tires are, and they get a pothole, or what would normally happen to the joints start crumbling. You cannot just go out and see it, but you really shouldn't just go put asphalt in there because it usually makes it worse. So you have to cut the joint out and do so it's really expensive to repair concrete. So you get longer life, but more expensive. And I think about that in regards to citizens and on the line with some ties and everything blowing up. Uh, I'm sure they would rather see concrete because it's, uh, Bernard, do we, uh, when a citizen gets a pothole and needs a tie or anything like that, do we have a pretty good, uh, a lot of claims on that, or how does that work? It, it, it varies. That uh, Terminal Boulevard was just been done, and before it was completed, mm -hmm. we were getting a lot of claims from it. So it, it, it depends upon the, the condition and the winter. Okay. Amy? Um, claim versus... Bernard, when you say claims, exactly what does that mean? Do you have people reporting it in, or do we pay out? Uh, when people ask us to pay is what we call a claim. Okay. Good. All right, next we'll discuss utilities. Uh, the Norfolk Department of Utilities is the second largest <coughs> waterworks in the Commonwealth. Uh, it began pumping water to residents in 1873 and now provides water not only to the residents of Norfolk, but Virginia Beach, parts of Chesapeake, and the Navy. 
Uh, utilities has over 1,500 miles of water and sewer pipe, two uh, water treatment plants, 133 sewer pump stations, and draws water from eight rev reservoirs, two river pump stations, <coughs> and four deep wells. Uh, many, as I said earlier, many of the pipes today that are in use today uh, date back before World War I. Uh, while utilities have done a great job managing its infrastructure, uh, many of the water mains, sewer pipes, and sewer pump stations are beyond their useful life. Uh, the infrastructure backlog for these items is estimated to be about $585 million. Uh, stormwater and resilience. Um, the stormwater and resilience backlog is presented in the table below. Uh, we've broken it down into, into three components. Uh, precipitation uh, flooding master plan. Uh, this is the stormwater or resilience piece related to rainfall. Uh, this is mostly uh, more stormwater pipes, uh, BMPs, and pump stations. Uh, the cost information comes from a citywide drainage master plan that was performed in, in 2012. Uh, the second component is the tidal flooding master plan. Uh, the cost information is from the coastal flooding master plan that was developed also in 2012. Uh, funds would pay for infrastructure improvements like, like raising the downtown flood wall. And the third component is the cost related to the EPA's regulations related to removing pollutants from the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, so total backlog is estimated at, at $2.8 billion for stormwater and resilience. Um, I went to a, um, an event uh, all day Friday on resilience for infrastructure, and I appreciate we look at resilience in terms of flooding. but. The resilience of our storm, of our, our drinking water and our wastewater systems, given the fact that we are so prone to flooding and potentially uh, damaging weather events, um, I think. I mean, the idea of not having water, drinking safe drinking water, um, is so <coughs> scary. And I know we have at Arthur Reservoir that our sewage, our, our, our uh, water treatment facilities. We just heard from Swift. So when we think about resilience, I hope we're also looking at our infrastructure from that regard, too. Can I say something? Maybe. Um, one of the things that we discuss with the Elizabeth River um, Trail Committee or Executive Board is that um, we have to concern ourselves, too, with dog poop. Um, it is. It is a huge issue for us here um, across the entire seven cities, um, people not realizing, and that is a part of resiliency, taking a look at dog poop because it can filter in through our waters and it is extremely um, difficult when we can't. Um, the other one is medication, um, medicine, um, where we flush it down the toilet, but it does not, um, it does nothing because it sits there, and I, I tested it out, and it goes nowhere. So we have to be mindful as far as that as part of resiliency, and that's something that the Elizabeth River Project is looking into as well. Okay, Tommy? I, I didn't see um, lights, street lights, anywhere in here. Did I miss it? I'm not sure if it's on the public works slide or not. Not traffic signal. Mm -hmm. uh, lights. So... Just, uh, Doug, since you haven't heard this from me, I used to, like, once a year say, we've got to put up city people in trucks to drive around the city and find all of our lights that are out and tag them. 
we get credits for them. If Dominion <coughs> fix them, we get a credit for them. And it's a good way to get some money back in to replace lights. But I can't tell you, I can't keep up with it anymore. I mean, it's just there's so many street lights out in Norfolk, and they're not tagged. I mean, multiple intersections without lights. And, you know, we need to look at that. We also need to look at reducing places where we have too many of these, where we've come in and put them in, maybe move them to places that don't have lights, if there's a way to do that. Um, you know, all of the new military highway section is getting all new lights over there, which is great. Probably much more than was ever there. Uh, you know, places like East Beach have all the new lights, but there are just so many lights out in our communities. And um, the citizens, maybe we need to do another campaign, having citizens call those in and get numbers. But we could at least do the main roads. And we did that a couple years ago, and it was amazing to see what staff came back with, how many needed to be flagged and marked. Um, I know we're, we're tight on staff, but we'll, we'll find out. What it's a good way to get money back into the city and get us those credits. Maybe to Mr. Riddick. Um, Tommy, we discussed that in um, the five-point task force meeting on last Thursday, um, identifying going out the number of lights that are out in neighborhoods. And um, yesterday, visiting um, Tidewater Park Elementary School, um, all of the lights are out in the parking lot to the school, every last single one. Yeah. Uh, for your ADA ramps, community block building grant funds, I know it's a limited amount of money, but that, that could be used for that. Do you, do you, are you using it to subsidize some of that? Yes, sir. We, we have uh, a number of times over the last four or five years since I've been here. You uh, plan to do it, the, the, <clears throat> is there still a plan to continue using that? Uh, it is. All right, so one last slide. So when we put all the information together, uh, here's where we end up. Uh, the city's total infrastructure backlog is approaching $4 billion. It's a number that's hard to even contemplate, uh, and we can't address it on our own. Uh, we simply don't have the, the financial firepower to get there. Uh, we'll, need a we'll need significant support from the Commonwealth and from the federal government to address some of the challenges that we've, that we've outlined in the presentation. All right, thank you very much. Greg, thank you. So, uh, Mayor, you heard me last year talk about uh, the, the need to um, have a maintenance CIP. We'll, we'll be in your, the proposal that we'll put forward to you here in a few weeks will be similar in that it'll be a, as much about taking care of what we have, uh, more about that than um, uh, bringing on new um, projects. It, it is uh, 6.45, Ms. Johnson. Um, uh, we will, Dr. Perry was prepared to hold off until March 13th, so we'll do that and uh, give you all uh, time to uh, take a quick break yeah. and be upstairs at 7 o'clock.